so many times, almost too many to count, just in the song alone. And while each chapter or each stanza, 22 of them, present a trial of sorts, we nevertheless have the confession of the author who repeats time and time again with a host of synonyms that the Lord is sufficient for any difficulty we might face. So thus these themes continue in our text today. I would like to, the goal of this message, proclaim the wonders of God's Word, inspiring worship. That would be the aim of this message today, to unfold, as it were, the wonders of the Lord revealed in these scriptures and a few attending passages, and that that proclamation might inspire in the hearts and the lives of His people true worship of our God. With that introduction and your hearts open and out of reverence, would you stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word today? As we stand to hear God's word, we behold Psalm 119, 129 through 136. Here is the sufficient word of Christ. Pay. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Organized in the original language under the Hebrew letter Pei, the 17th stanza of Psalm 119 continues to extol the glory and sufficiency of the covenant revelation of the Lord. We've, the Word of God could be referred to as that, the covenant relational revelation disclosure of the Lord. The psalmist sings of the wonderful testimonies of the Lord. His unfolding words right there in, that, in Psalm 129 or 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. He sings of the Lord's enviable commandments. He longs for them. He pants for them. He sings of His lovely name, His gracious promise, His precepts, His statutes, and His law, multiplying still more references to the covenant revelation of the Lord as the song continues. Along with the enduring and sophisticated acrostic structure that we've noticed, each verse in each stanza beginning with a subsequent Hebrew letter, the major themes of the song reassurance uh, of the songs, <coughs> excuse me, the major themes of the song resurface in this verse as well. The psalmist entreats the Lord to steady his steps, reminding the singer of this journey theme, echoed in other verses like 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And even turning back to the beginning of the song, we find references to feet, travel, path, and so forth. And here the term way is used in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? There's a sense that the journey begins with a young man committing himself to order his footsteps according to the word of God. And then as each stanza continues, uh, we see a record of God's faithfulness along this way. His faithfulness and sufficient means to guard and guide him. 
the Word of God as a lamp unto his feet in verse 105. And in our text today continues, this theme continues as well with 133, keep steady my steps according to your promise. Thus, this journey theme is echoed in this passage as well. In other verses like 105, he has proclaimed the Lord, the Lord's word, his covenant revelation is a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. He continues to model vigilance in guarding this way and guarding his way according to the word of God as he has professed at the start of his journey, even as a young man, perhaps, in verse 9. And though trials continue to attend him, the hope of salvation found in the covenant assurances of divine revelation more than sustain him. Again, though each section presents a trial, and here we have the dominion or the oppression of the evil man, nevertheless, the word of God has proven more than sufficient. And this testimony is only increasing as our psalmist moves through the song, which corresponds, it would seem, to the faithfulness of the Lord over the lifetime of a believer. The covenant assurances of divine revelation sustain him, and so grateful and convinced is he of the merits of the way of holiness that he is distraught, he is sad, he sheds streams of tears, not because of the plight that he faces, not because of his own trials, but here instead, because or at the thought, there, there are so many who pay no heed to something as precious and powerful as the law of God. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law, he says in verse 136. Thus, we get a heart of the psalmist coming through in our passage again today. And the work of the Spirit is evident. It would seem sanctifying the Lord's servant. And I prayed today, in uh, sanctifying his servant, this is apparent as he continues to mature and endure according to the sovereign call. And thus, with this kind of overview, it is my prayer and hope in considering these words that we would be inspired and equipped likewise and be moved by this persistent testimony of the faithfulness of the Lord and the faithfulness of his servant relying on the Lord. So let me give you a heading and let's explore several relationships in this section of, the, of Psalm 119, the great acrostic psalm, the Pei or 17th stanza. So these would be relationships in the 17th stanza. I'm going to argue that there's a relationship that the psalmist assumes between worship and obedience. And then there are three postures of the soul that are intrinsic to worship, wonder, affections, passions. And there's a relationship thus between our heart uh, being soft before the Lord and in tune with Him in these ways and our faithfulness unto Him. Secondly, there's a relationship between revelation, God revealing Himself, and understanding the foundation and basis of knowledge in the first place. And then thirdly, there's a relationship between dominion, that is submission or service and faithfulness. We are faithful to that uh, under which we are, or there's a relationship that, that to which we owe our allegiance is who we are faithful to. So let us consider Psalm 119 um, a little more closely this morning. Our first heading, worship and obedience, we'll consider three verses, 129, 131, and 136. So let's consider this relationship between worship and obedience. Verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. 131, 
I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. And final verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. All true worship, uh, let me submit today, involves obedience. There's no such thing as legitimate, authentic, true worship devoid of obedience. They're inseparable. However, and let me further add that when obedience springs from true devotion, it is worship. Not all obedience is true worship. All true worship involves obedience. However, not all obedience is true worship. When obedience springs from true devotion to the Lord, it is worship. It is honoring to Him. It is faithful to the one who deserves our allegiance. There are three postures of the soul intrinsically linked to worship, you might say, in this verse based on these, or in, the, in this stanza based on these three verses. The first is wonder, the second, affections, and the third, passions. Wonder. My testim- your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Do you see this relationship between obedience and wonder? Why does the psalmist keep the Lord's testimonies? Well, in part, he says, because they are wonderful. They capture his attention. He finds them fascinating. He loves them, appreciates them. He is, uh, his, uh, uh, or the, the focus of his soul is compelled by the beauty and the glory of what the Lord has revealed. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. We could uh, go further to add this. Man cannot help but worship. And by worship, we mean also obey that which he holds supremely wonderful. We are hardwired in the, uh, the nature of our being, the way that we are created and organized and ordered according to our Lord who made us. Man cannot help but worship and obey that which he holds supremely wonderful. Man cannot truly worship what he does not hold as supremely wonderful. There are those who claim to showcase a form of worship or obedience or religion or devotion. But without being truly captured at the heart and soul level with the beauty of salvation, this worship is disingenuous and illegitimate. It more likely falls into the category of mere legalism or formality. In order for worship to be sincere, in order for the soul to keep the testimonies of the Lord in the way that is not self-serving, I will prove myself righteous by following commandments. I will testify to my own integrity by keeping these commandments. I will prove myself to be a good person by showing these virtues. All of these motivations fall short of true worship. Because they, because they make the advancement, the proclamation, and the display of self the focus of the motivation for one's own righteousness. The Bible calls this self-righteousness. People who think of themselves as wonderful or want to project themselves as wonderful, they might show a form of righteousness or a form of religion, a form of obedience, but they have lost the connection because what they hold as truly wonderful is not the Lord himself for who he is. It is not the word of God that compels their attention, but their own self-serving interests. The psalmist against this notion and this a testimony of the flesh 
instead holds the things of the Lord as wonderful, and therefore his soul keeps them. There is an essential purpose in preaching, I would say. One, there are many goals and purposes and aims in true biblical godly preaching, but one of them is to extol the wonders of the Lord as he is revealed in his holy word in such a way that the hearer is inspired and called to worship. It's my prayer in this message and that other messages preached from this pulpit that the wonders of the Lord would be proclaimed, that our attention would be drawn to the glories of Scripture, that He would be revealed that the clouds of our short-sighted understanding, our sinful motivations and intentions, and just the stupidity that covers us like a cloud and a fog of self-centered, ridiculous blindness, that as the Word of God is proclaimed, as it is revealed to us in unfolding glory, that it would hold our attention, that we would consider it wonderful, that we'd be amazed at what is revealed there, the testimonies of the Lord, His awesome truth, the glories of His righteousness, His nature, and His character. Think today of how many ways our sense of wonder is co-opted by the things of this world. People seek for to be amazed and moved and entertained and wowed. They seek for experiences and, and they go to the ends of the earth and even into space in search of things to hold and capture their attention and to fascinate and mesmerize them. And this sense of wonder and a kind of lust for the amazing is <coughs> oh, <coughs> excuse me, all around us. We find so many things intriguing. But the real tragedy is and the psalmist cried streams of tears over this, is that the things that we consider wonderful in our flesh, in our sin, and in our culture are so often not worthy of the kind of attention we give them. Our attention and our sense of wonder is so often co-opted by sinful apparitions, amusements, movies, experiences, vain imaginations, sinful fantasies, self-delusion, spiritual perversions on the internet everybody wants clicks we call it clickbait so they put things out there headlines and pictures and whatever uh stories and so forth to cater to our sense of that's interesting that's intriguing that holds my attention that captures my uh interest power mystery sensationalism these are three themes that recur to me things that hold our interest and capture this sense of wonder the real question we're hardwired for this as i mentioned before but the real question is what should we consider wonderful what is truly glorious last time we were at the ocean some of you have returned there recently i just could not be uh i could not escape the vast magnitude of the ocean landscape in front and then to think that that's just a fraction of a fraction of the volume of one of earth's oceans it struck me as I was looking out upon the waves that the oceans themselves, I know I've mentioned this before, but I think it bears repeating because it's maybe an example of this sense of wonder that creation itself, in as much as it reveals something of the Lord, should capture our attention and inspire a sense of wonder. The oceans themselves are a remaining artifact of the judgment and wrath of God. How sinful is man and how wicked is he and what does that deserve? The vastness of the oceans have something to say about that. What do we look at and what do we behold when we see the landscape of creation? Is it the wonder of God? 
Is it the wonders of His sustaining and creative power that we see in the clouds and the sky and the changing of seasons and the suns and the snowstorm that we just experienced over the last 24 hours? Or are we distracted by other things? You know, we look on the uh, YouTube or something and we might be more compelled to see a person surfing a wave rather than the power of the wave itself which speaks to God's authority to judge sin And that is truly wonderful. It's terrifying. It's amazing. And your next thought as a believer would be, I would be drowned in the judgments of God if it weren't for the saving work of Jesus Christ. We open the scriptures and we see the story of Noah. Some of you returned recently from the Ark Encounter, which is a full-scale replica of the very instrument that God ordained a man and his family to build to escape the judgments of God. There were just eight of them. And of course, this becomes a picture of our Ark our saving, our, the, uh, the instrument of salvation, Jesus Christ, for us. These things are truly wonderful. The heavens, uh, the direction of the gaze of Abraham was pointed toward the heavens, and it was something like a drone footage view of the future elect that the stars, would, that the stars uh, represented and the vast expanse in the Near East to that our ancient forefather as he looked in the heavens. Can you count the stars, Abraham? No, so shall your descendants be in this sense of wonder, the majesty of God, in spite of the sinfulness of man, to save for himself a myriad of holy ones, an uncountable number, an indefinite throng that would sing his praises forever should capture our attention. Around the uh, turn of the year, we focus much of our attention and sometimes are preaching on the incarnation. There is nothing more wonderful, no miracle in the cosmos or in history or in the entire universe as amazing as the wonder of God taking on flesh, becoming a man and dying in our place. These things are truly wonderful. They are the things that should hold our attention. They are what's truly glorious. They are truly great. The testimonies of the Lord are a constant theme in Scripture, whole psalms given to the record of God's faithfulness in judgment and redemption, recurring themes where His power is manifest in glorious ways, and the megaphone of His authority reverberates through history and creation and through the events of the Old Testament into the New and will continue till world's end to proclaim His wonders. These are the things that hold the psalmist's attention. And when our heart and mind are in the right place, they should hold our attention as well. And when His testimonies are wonderful to us, when we love His Word, obedience flows naturally from this frame of soul. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Furthermore, affections. 131. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. A related thought. Our worship text today began with an echo, a parallel of this same concept in Psalm 42. Another poetic analogy is used here, similar. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. There's this desperate, you know, if there's a lack of water and a great need, a a thirst, it tends to focus our attention. And reading of the famine that plagued the land in Genesis 42, 
42, 43, and everyone's attention became very focused on food. If a man is dying in the desert and crawling, the only thing that he can think about is that singular hope and prayer that over the next sand dune, he might see a palm tree indicating that there's an oasis and a source of water. There's a sense of desperation that that which sustains life is the only thing that's important when you're at death's door, when you're truly starving, when you're truly thirsty. It narrows the focus to the absolute priorities. You know, there's so much of life that gives us the illusion that we can do whatever we want or priorities don't matter because we have a lot of plenty around us and relatively comfortable lives. It's too easy to take for granted that which God's mercy and grace alone supplies, even in our daily bread, even in the next breath in our lungs. But I know for myself and struggling with asthma a bit, I'm, like, I'm less likely to take my next breath for granted if, I, it's, if that breathing becomes heavy and you begin to struggle for your next breath. And likewise, for someone who's thirsty in the wilderness, they're much less likely. They would give their life's fortune for that next glass of water. What is truly, uh, what are the, the true things ultimately and eternally that our soul is dependent on? Is it not the commandments of the Lord? Is it not himself revealed and the way that he has ordered things? Is it not the created purposes for which we were made? Is it not the way that he has revealed and structured his world, the way he has ordered salvation? And thus, when, our, when we realize the priorities of the soul, our mouth, so to speak, opens and pants, and we long for the commandments. A great prayer, by the way, is that a certain thirst of the soul would descend upon us in this society, in this nation, that people would realize that they are famished, that they are dying of thirst for lack of hearing and appreciating the word of the Lord. We need to pray that our affections, the things that our deepest and most heartfelt desires would be retuned to that which, to, which in actuality sustains us, especially sustains us eternally. And then passions, this almost continues to build on this theme. In verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. The strongest of emotional responses, an intense reaction. No one could claim, no one could accuse the psalmist of being an unfeeling stoic, of being someone who just with a stone face endures life and is not really moved by anything. The Bible does endorse a sense of feeling and a deep uh, expressions of the soul, absolutely. It just doesn't hold those things out as the foundation. What is the foundation? Well, the foundation is the testimonies, the words, the commandments, the promise, the precepts, the statutes, and the laws of the Lord, just to name a few synonyms in this passage. But when that foundation is laid in the soul and realized, we need, it is right and proper that our soul would respond with deep and meaningful expressions of love and appreciation, of joy and sadness and sorrow accordingly. And this is a proper ordering of the way that we are made. We are emotional creatures, but this emotion is to be based and, and, and pinned and anchored to something of meaning. You know, what do you think is the most pitiful and sad thing that you can think of? Is it the fact that so many people do not keep the law of the Lord? You know, there are many things that move us to sadness, many things that move us to joy, but the question the psalmist implicitly asks is what should hold our attention? What should cause us the most deep of sorrow? What should inspire the depths of joy? 
and he holds his soul accountable to the foundations of these things in truth and righteousness, and thus confesses, my eyes shed streams of tears for what is truly pitiful and sad, the fact that so many people do not keep the law of the Lord. What would the psalmist's reaction be to our society today and to the, um, to the uh, prideful disregard in our culture for the law of God? Well, surely there is room for much sorrow, is there not? And we should pray that the Lord would move us with the kind of things that He feels when He analyzes the state and the situation in which we live, perhaps our own lives and certainly the lives of those around us, so that the worship of the Lord and the obedience of the Lord come together in our minds. And once again, the relationship between the two. True worship, which springs from a heart and a soul which is calibrated to the Lord, so that our wonder, our sense of wonder, and our affections and our passions are rooted in Him, this leads to full-orbed, authentic obedience and righteousness, steady steps, and a heart that loves the Lord, and a more consistent testimony in the fullness of our walk and our actions, our desires, our motivations, our ambitions, and our goals according to the Word of God. Thus the psalmist expounds in the 17th stanza the relationship between worship and obedience. And the second major relationship, let's consider today revelation and understanding, the Lord revealing Himself and our own knowledge. Verse 130, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Do you see the relationship there? If the Lord does not unfold His word to us, then we do not have understanding. We remain simple, unsophisticated, ignorant, and stupid, and our sin blind and without the tools necessary to interact with life and to put it in proper categories and to negotiate truth. This is a, a reality that is lost on pagan man. Uh, think of the vanity of our culture today. Think of the pride of modern intellectualism. The vanity of secular thought and intellectual pursuit really, I suggest, could be characterized these days as seeking understanding by other means. So much of our society is corrupted by the vain and self-defeating enterprise of, if you will, extra-revelational understanding. The vain and self-defeating enterprise of understanding ourselves and this world without reference to the Word of God. Vain and self-destructive. There is no way that we can have an accurate knowledge of ourselves. You know, the idea of self-awareness is very popular. You know, I, I, you'll hear people embracing spiritual disciplines in our day, things like meditation, self-awareness, and so forth. But often what's conspicuously absent is the objective standard of God's Word and His Spirit, who can truly analyze us and tell us what's wrong. No, you know, people can just go on a whim and a feeling to try to diagnose their own condition. But when it comes to things they do not understand, like the nature of a particular disease, they defer, and rightly so in many cases, to an expert in the field, someone who's devoted their life to studying that thing. And so they go and they don't perform surgery on their self and remove a malignant tumor from their gallbladder, but they go to someone who has an understanding, an objective level of experience, who is able with the tools at their disposal to do surgery, to stitch them back up and to promote healing. How, well, how much more our spiritual condition? 
There is the cancerous malignance of sin, and only the Lord Himself understands us and can distinguish between the two. It is the Word of God that is sharp like a two-edged sword that divides asunder between soul and spirit and so forth. These images in Scripture uh, uh, elevate and promote and extol the Word of God as the means of understanding Him, His world, and ourselves. How much ambition, how much money, how many resources... Aaron and I were discussing this yesterday. How much of the scientific enterprise, how much of higher academia, and how much much money and attention has been thrown down the drain of this misguided quest of human knowledge and all of this into the dead end of pseudo-scientific foolishness. Since Darwin, science has proceeded with the understanding that the world created itself and all the vain hypotheses and all of the money spent. Accidentally, scientists will discover truth, you know, in spite of, you know, their misguided presuppositions, and there'll be some, you know, value. This is only because of the common grace of God and them stumbling onto something in spite of themselves. But you take the last 150 years and all the resources and energy dedicated to proving that we are our own gods, and if you had directed them into a noble pursuit of the Lord with the, pre, with the understanding that he has creatively designed us and uh, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He has gloriously engineered the universe and it speaks to his creative power. Think of how advanced we would be as a society. Think of how much of the organization and the understanding of our culture would be glorifying to God rather than elevating idols and undermining the foundation of our own existence and asking and begging for the judgment of God to fall upon us because what? We've separated understanding from revelation. We assume we can know things with certainty and that there's a path to advancement and to truth without paying attention to the Word of God. To the degree that we know anything, it is because God has revealed it to us whether through natural, in natural means in creation uh, or general revelation or specifically and most importantly through His Holy Word. Even in His Word, there's a relationship between knowledge and time. He says, The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. In this, He's acknowledging that the Word of God cre- has seeds of glorious revelation that unfold over the course of His works through history. And this is one of those wonderful things that he says in 130 should hold our attention. And that seed form gospel in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the, a woman will crush the seed of the serpent, uh, so to speak, and that though he would bruise his heel, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The unfolding of this gospel promise at the cross is incredible. There's other references to this concept that we have studied of late, like Enoch and Melchizedek, where the the significance of what these figures represented is less clear until they're expounded upon in light of the coming of Christ and their fulfillment in the New Testament. Someone asked me this last week about why was the dedication of the firstborn required? Did God require human sacrifice in the Old Covenant? If you read some verses out of context, it would appear that God required the firstborn. And in a sense, He did. But He also had a provision for their redemption. Go back to you know, the Passover, a lamb, perfect spotless lamb, as much as they, we could muster, and this fallen world was offered as a substitute payment. And then when the angel of death 
course, representing the wages of sin, visited the people. Those who were not covered by the blood of the substitute were killed that night. But those who had the lamb's blood on the doorpost were saved. And then the firstborn and the redemption price for the firstborn to fund the Levitical order was a way to commemorate and to remember this event all through history. But then when Christ came, who came? The firstborn of God himself. And who was he? As John testifies, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what did he do? He died as a sacrifice. And who then are saved from the wages of sin? Those who trust his blood as their redemption and atoning sacrifice. And thus the great high priest and the great sacrifice, Christ, fulfills these pictures of old. That's an example of the unfolding of God's revelation over time that gives light. Things unfold in our own lives as the Lord grows us in maturity and understanding as we set our mind to understand the scriptures. And as we grow and as he grants grace and rewards that effort, we begin to have a deeper understanding of the categories of truth and grow in theology and appreciate more of the consistent and unified testimony of the word of God. These things are awesome. These are the unfolding of the words of God that gives light, both in history and even in our own experience. There's a relationship between grace and love. In 132, turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way, with those who love your name. Those who love the name of the Lord have experienced his grace. Now, this love is legitimate. Love is justified by its object. Everybody loves their pleasant ideas, about the metaphysical, the divine, or about who they assume or wish that God is. But they are not the ones who receive His grace. There is a relationship between being introduced to the Lord for who He truly is and His grace. Those who love what? Your name. What is the name of the Lord? It is that which is essential to His character. It is the fact that He has wrath upon sin that he has grace for the sinner by a substitute wrath-absorbing sacrifice. It is all that he is and that magnifies his name in his works, in his glory, in his testimony through Scripture, in his renown, in his holiness, in his majesty. These are the things. And though, these are the things that comprise the revelation of God. And those who love the Lord revealed, unfolded in these ways, they are the ones who experience His grace. There's a relationship between the two. Turn to me and be gracious to me, the psalmist asks. He is appealing to the covenant relationship with the Lord and the assurance of love that is promised to him. But it requires the Lord to turn to him this reminds us of another relationship, covenant and theology, the understanding of God and a relationship with Him. He says in uh, verse 135, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. That's related to 132, turn to me and be gracious to me. This turn to me language or make your face shine upon me is no doubt an illusion to the priestly prayer of Aaron all the way back in Numbers chapter 6. If you want to turn there, we can get a little greater context. The Lord spoke to Moses in Numbers 6, 22, and gave him a prayer to pray over the people. And gave uh, Moses a prayer to give to Aaron, that is, to pray over the people. Aaron was anointed as the high priest. He would be the go-between 
representing the people before the Lord. There would be something of a mediation role, at least pictured, in Aaron's ministry. Verse 23, the Lord gives these instructions. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel and shall say to them, and here's his prayer, verse 24, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. What this prayer affirms is that without the Lord turning in kindness to us, he's turned against us in wrath and judgment in our sin. But in salvation and in redemption, that relationship is restored. And while, the Lord, and while we were against the Lord in enmity with him, and the Lord was against us before our hearts were changed, before we were redeemed, before we were born again and regenerate, there was a fundamental change when the Lord turns His face toward us. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. You can study books your entire life long. You can memorize the entire Bible. But the knowledge of the Lord that is gained through mere mental assent falls short of truly knowing the Lord. Truly knowing the Lord involves a relationship where the Lord turns to you is gracious to you, and now the knowledge of Him is not mere mental assent, but it's a shared relational experience of love and a personal connection to God Almighty. The psalmist recognizes this. He understands this. He knows that if the prayer of Aaron is not answered for him, that the Lord would make His face to shine upon him, then there really is no true understanding of His statutes. Thus, there is a relationship between our covenant with the Lord and theology or understanding of Him, appreciating and knowing at a deep level the statutes of the Lord and the other elements, of course, promise, precepts, law, commandments, and so forth as well. There's a relationship between affirming, acknowledging, and realizing those and the Lord's face shining upon us. Now again, just as an example of unfolding, when we turn to John 17... I would mark this passage as a fulfillment or a further unfolding of what was in seed form in number six and then referenced again in Psalm 119. Here, Jesus, the high priest, the once for all sufficient mediator, according to the order of Melchizedek, which is different than Aaron, because as the author of Hebrews says, the order of Melchizedek held forth prophetically that there would be a priest that was perfect, sinless, and would not know death as a result, he would be eternal, and thus could always and perfectly represent his people. Of course, this Melchizedekian priest came in Jesus Christ. And when he came, there were these moments, this window into his ministry as high priest that we behold in the Gospels. Among them, John 17, verse 1, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. This is our Lord, our Messiah. This is our High Priest praying for us. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
He continues to intercede on behalf of his people. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This is the fulfillment of the prayer and the profession of the psalmist in Psalm 119, and of that prophetic prayer of Aaron, who served typologically in this office of high priest in number six. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. We can appreciate all the more the statutes of the Lord and light of the Lord shining his face upon us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, praying for us as our high priest, the fulfillment of this covenant relationship between those who have true knowledge and the Lord is established and secure. Thus, in Christ, and over redemptive history. And when those grace and that grace and love comes together in the gospel, this connection between revelation and understanding creates this overwhelming, powerful experience and amazing reality for every redeemed believer. And you may think to yourself, I don't even have a glimpse of anything like this yet. The little that I know and understand, there must be so much more. And that is always true, this side of glory. But realize that the vision that is held out in the scriptures and is celebrated in Psalm 119 will increase and continue with our own sanctification and will come into its fullness when we, that full manifest presence of the Lord, is our experience in glory one day. And then we will have pure understanding and pure revelation. No more veils of sinful fallenness between us and who the Lord is. It won't be a glimpse here and there that we glean as we walk in the Spirit and our eyes are open, but the unmitigated shining of Jesus Christ in His presence and that glorious, unveiled revelation of God Himself will be our eternal reward in heaven one day. And oh, the revelation and oh, the knowledge and understanding we will gain. What a glorious future we have. Finally, this morning, there is a relationship the psalmist expounds between dominion and faithfulness. For this, let's consider verses 133 and 134. He cries, Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Dominion of Christ is implicitly recognized here as contrasted with the dominion of sin, and there's also reference to the dominion of tyrants, if you will. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. And then this next verse, keep steady my steps according to your promise. What is the promise of the Lord and, how is the, and what is the relationship between that promise and the steps of the psalmist, of his servant? Well, this is the dominion relationship, the master-servant relationship that is intrinsic to covenant. Keep steady my steps. The psalmist recognizes that there's a promised relationship between the greater party and the lesser. He understands this covenantal bond and relationship between himself and the Lord. It is the promise of God, promises along the lines of those given to Abraham, that he would bless and prosper and save those who are the called according to his promise, the seed of Abraham. The promise of the gospel, likewise, we confess our sin, we acknowledge our worthlessness before the Lord. We acknowledge that we are dependent on our Savior. We submit to the terms of relationship that in Him and in the sacrifice that He supplied 
so we are remade and we are made new, a new creation. And thus, based on this promise of the Lord providing sufficient atonement and satisfying the terms of the covenant, then and only then will our steps be steady. Will we walk in a manner worthy of our call? Will there be any testimony of faithfulness in us? Faithfulness, steady steps, an increase in our understanding and application of the Word of God is dependent upon us, uh, the dominion of Christ in our life. There's, there's two, uh, man is inherently contingent. We are dependent. We are not an island. We are not autonomous. And the scriptures expound on this, by the way. This, it's, you're going to be under the dominion of something. It's inescapable. Romans chapter 6 is a great cross-reference in this regard. In verse 12, the apostle proclaims, he cries out praise, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Admonition for us. To obey uh, to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So you see here, dominion is inescapable in the sense that we are to submit that we will and are submitted to something we are the submitted to christ and submit ourselves and the aspects of our humanity as instruments of righteousness or we are submitted to our sin and we become uh, our uh, human uh, expressions and abilities and everything becomes an instrument of iniquity thus the psalmist prays in verse 133 let no iniquity get dominion over me. In other words, may I be submitted to the covenant terms that you have laid out. Otherwise, I know that I will be submitted instead or under the dominion instead of my, na of my sinful nature and the, and the captivity of sin. This also parallels the Lord's prayer. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. May I be submitted to you. You are holy and you are God, and you are awesome. I recognize that this dominion is an inescapable situation. Therefore, let me be under the dominion of Christ, and by this relationship, and according to this order of things, submitted to the Lord and to His Word, may I walk in faithfulness. There is a radical independence that was promised in original sin. This promise was a delusional farce. Uh, the, Satan convinced man that he was not codependent, really necessarily codependent on anyone, but he could decide for himself his own way. He could determine for himself what is right and wrong. But the foolishness of this delusional lie quickly settled upon mankind. And it was instead of a message of liberation and radical independence, instead, it just changed the terms of our slavery. Instead of being lovingly under the submission of our sovereign God, now we were cursed to death and hell under the dominion and iniquity of sin. But there is redemption from this. There's redemption from sin's bondage, not by becoming totally autonomous and earning it in and of ourselves and realizing uh, the dream of Satan. No, but instead to be returned to submission to the Lord.
to surrender our desire for radical autonomy, to repent of the self-serving life that we have lived in in the corruption of our soul, and to ask that the Lord would restore us in proper order once again, according to his original intent, to reestablish that covenant relationship in Christ, that we would be submitted to him under his dominion and not ruled by sin. There's a third sense of dominion that the psalmist asked for freedom from. He asked for freedom from the dominion of tyrants as well. Psalm 134, redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Oppression. What could oppression mean in this context? Well, I suggest the schemes of man seeking worship through compelled obedience. Remember, we talked about this relationship between obedience and worship. A true worship stems from obedience that comes from the heart. But men, in their, uh, in their uh, ridiculous quest, in their vain quest to exalt themselves as God, will sometimes compel obedience, trying to get people to worship them. This was true, of course, in Daniel's day. Remember the tactic that was employed then? It's like, don't pray to anything else except the king for X amount of time, and anyone who doesn't will be thrown into a den of lions. Or for Daniel's three friends, there's this image representing the king, his authority and his influence and his renown. And when the music plays, they're all supposed to bow before him. And if they don't, they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. There's a tactic that is used, a scheme that tyrants use for those who fall short of inspiring obedience by virtue of their holy nature. No man can, no man is supremely wonderful. Therefore, those who seek the, and lust after the uh, worship of men resort often to force, and manipulation, oppression, and tyranny to secure obedience and then pretend that it's worship and thus to exalt themselves over men. And so we need to pray for, to be redeemed from this. We need to pray that the Lord would keep us from the dominion of men or from the oppression. Redeem me from man's oppression. And today we feel this in many ways, do we not? You know, constrictive laws and is a very popular uh, notion or it's understood by many, even unbelievers, that our civil liberties are constantly under attack in this increasingly centralized government, totalitarian regime in which we live. And uh, we should fight and we should oppose the encroachment upon our civil liberties. We, it is right and proper that we live in a society that allows us freedom of conscience. But the real question is why? To do what? To smoke pot and to be lazy or something like that? To live the sort of hedonistic libertarian dream or whatever, the misguided person who just wants to do what he wants to do without consequences? No, it's freedom to live according to the precepts of the Word of God. We should pray and advocate to be redeemed from the oppression of man. Why? So that we may keep his precepts. What is a wicked? What is a false? What is a corrupt and rebellious government? One who makes laws that would forbid or suppress men from keeping the precepts, the commandments of the Lord. Laws that cut against and if we were to obey them would be in violation of the testimonies, the statutes, and the law of God. These are wicked edicts. This is injustice codified by statute. This is the oppression of the evil one that the psalmist prays that he would be delivered from. So as we go out and seek some co-belligerence with those who are fighting for our religious or our civil liberties, remember that for the believer, it's liberty to do something, not just serve self. It's, It's liberty to teach 
the statutes of the Lord to our children free from the domination of a wicked government who, must, who says, no, you have to affirm their self or their self-identity and embrace gender-affirming care and introduce, uh, you know, hormones to stop their puberty in order for them to be able to identify as the opposite sex or any number of genders when they come of age. And we say, no, we fight against these kinds of things. Why? Because we seek to be redeemed from man's oppression that we may keep the precepts of the Lord. So there's a great context here, even to apply in the day in which we live. Redeem me, O Lord, from man's oppression, that I may keep your word. Of course, this testimony is shared by our forebears in the New Testament. A famous verse in Acts 5.29, where Peter and company say to the authorities of their day, you must decide for yourself what is right. As for us, we must obey God rather than men. And the next day, at the cost of abuse and imprisonment, they continue to preach the gospel. And thus, the Uh, confessions have codified since then in the understanding of the church that so long as wicked authorities forbid what God requires or require what God forbids, we must oppose them. But all of this, of course, is in the context of our duty. Our duty is to obey the Lord, to glorify Him, to walk in His ways, to be faithful unto Him, and to recognize the relationships that make this possible. Chief among them, the relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ, reestablished, that we might be saved unto glorifying Him. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank You for the power and promises of Your Holy Word. We thank You for the beauty that it contains. Lord, I pray that our attention would be drawn to the revelation of Your goodness and greatness and Your character and Your nature in Scripture, that it would hold our attention, that we would deem Your testimonies wonderful. Lord, I pray that our soul, therefore, would keep them, that in the unfolding of your words, we would have the illumination, but illumination, Lord, that would lead to faithfulness and obedience to draw attention to you, bring glory to your name, and walk in a way, Lord, that advances your kingdom and encourages the saints. Lord, I pray today that you would plant the seed of your word as we have heard it properly proclaimed in soil prepared by the Holy Spirit to produce fruit for your name. Lord, if there are any in the sound of this message that have not repented and turned to you in the first place, we, bring that, we pray that the proclamation of your word would bring conviction to the unbeliever that they might turn and live. In Jesus' name, amen.